This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. Ken Edelman, who served in the Reagan administration as deputy U.S. ambassador to the United Nations and then as director of the U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency for nearly five years. He was a member of the U.S. delegation at the 1986 Reykjavik summit between Reagan and Gorbachev, which he describes in his book, Reagan at Reykjavik. Roger and Ken discuss the summit and how it led, in Ken's view, to the end of the Cold War. Dr. Ken Edelman, welcome to the show. Thank you, Roger. It is a real honor to have you here at the Reagan Institute, such a distinguished uh, uh, person, former member of the Reagan administration, and of course, the author of the book, Reagan at Reykjavik, 48 Hours That Ended the Cold War. Uh, you served in the Reagan administration as Deputy U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations under Ambassador Gene Kirkpatrick. And then, of course, uh, most relevant to the book, uh, you were Director of U.S. Arms Control and Disarmament Agency. Um, just give us a quick background. How did you come to work for the Reagan administration? Well, it was all a series of uh, errors and, <laughs> and mistakes. <laughs> And uh, luck, to tell you the truth. Uh, I had been a student of Jean Kirkpatrick at Georgetown University. She was my favorite professor. And uh, we had gone to uh, Spain together for an activity and the Committee on the Present Danger. And um, right when, and I had been on the, because of Dick Allen, I had been on the transition team of um, <clears throat> transition for the advisory committee uh, during the campaign. And in fact, with Paul Wolfowitz and Rick Bird, who you're going to have both uh, for the Schultz uh, seminar coming up, uh, the three of us backstopped the negotiations uh, for the Iranian hostage. And, uh, anyway, after the Reagan won and during the transition, I was on both the State Department transition and the NSC transition, and uh, Jean Kirkpatrick asked me to be her deputy. And I said, you know, wasn't that interested. I was happy. I had been in government probably uh, eight years and uh, before we went off to Africa and, and I got a doctorate from there. And, um, you know, and we were in Washington and I didn't think the two little girls, our girls, would appreciate moving to New York City, and we couldn't afford New York City because we had no money. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I gave her all these reasons. And she was very nice about it. She says, thank you. I really wanted you to be my deputy, blah, blah, blah. And uh, Dick Allen um, also asked me for a job. Anyway, so I was happy doing what I was ever doing. And uh, then in April, my phone rings. And, uh, you know, I pick it up. Hi, Gene, how are you? And she says, Ken, uh, I want you to be my deputy. I said, Gene, Gene. We already had this conversation, yes. <laughs> this conversation uh, in uh, November. And um, besides, Gene, you already have a deputy, okay? You hired a deputy. <laughs> and there's <laughs> silence. And she says, I know, but I don't like him and he doesn't like me. <laughs> I said, well, that's a problem, Gene. And she says, well, it's a real problem. And she says, I'll do this, okay? Why don't you and Carol, she knew Carol pretty well too, 
come up to New York and, um, you know, have you ever been to the United Nations? I said, no, there's no reason to go there and, and no great desire to go there. She says, great, take the shuttle up tomorrow morning and you can spend the day with me. You'll learn about the UN. Even if you don't do this, you know, you'll have a great day uh -huh. and bring Carol. And I said, oh, that sounds kind of like fun. Did you meet at the Waldorf? <laughs> no. Was that part of the trip? <laughs> we met, we've stayed with Jean at the Waldorf. Yeah, well, that's going to help. That's a good recruiting tool. Yeah, but she didn't mention it. <laughs> but uh, she said, uh, you know, we'll meet in the Delegates Lounge or whatever it was in the UN at uh, 10 o'clock. So we get there and we go around with Jean, the Security Council, the General Assembly, this, that, the other thing, and spend the whole day and have a great time, the three of us traipsing around. And that night at the Waldorf, 47th floor, Jean puts on a dinner party and uh, for members of her delegation, you know, who are there at the UN. And then Jean goes and, like I said, we're staying with her. Uh, Jean goes and gets on a bathrobe and her slippers and sits on the couch. And she says, well, as Mahalia Jackson said, or Ella Fitzgerald, is you is or is you ain't? <laughs> and I said... You know, it's up to Carol. This sounds like a lot of fun. Working with you would be a lot of fun, Gene. Uh, it would be, you know, but Carol's doing it. You had to doctorate. know this was coming to you, though, huh? I, I didn't. Well, she said it on the phone. She wanted to meet deputy, but, but I, you know, it was a nice day. We had a nice right. day. We had a great dinner uh, with a few of the people in, the, um, in her, her staff. And we laughed during dinner lots. Jean was very funny. She had a great sense of humor. Mm. Anyway, I said, don't talk to me, talk to Carol. And so she turned to Carol and said, how about this? Carol said, I'm doing my doctorate at Johns Hopkins at, at Baltimore, but I can do the, from go to Baltimore from New York just as well. And I said, well, you know, taking the kids out of school, blah, blah, blah. <clears throat> anyway, we went around and around, and finally Carol said, yeah, let's do it. It sounds like fun. I said, I, Were you surprised? Yes, I was. Because <laughs> the burden was on her. Right, right, and, right. And so Kids I said, and Gene, we is. We Gene, is. That's great. I will uh, tell a guy named Kennedy was in charge of White House or State Department personnel at that time. And so uh, we'll get the paperwork going. And, and there you are. There you become was, a deputy, and, huh? And what happened was... It was kind of interesting. Gene was uh, <clears throat> very interested in the policy issues, but she was not either interested or comfortable with some of the security issues. So when there was things about the arms control, things about the Pentagon, National Security Council meetings uh, on, you know, more the hard stuff than the soft stuff, uh, she asked me to go to New to uh, Washington, and she stayed in New York. Got it. And so, so you know, I, I was there. You know, I'd say a third of the time at National Security Council meetings, and it must have been something I said, or more probably the fact, <coughs> the fact that I didn't say much at all. That uh, <laughs> Reagan thought was very charming, and um, you know, two two years later, you no, know, two and a half years later. I was minding my own business and uh, went out to a breakfast with uh, James Chase, who is a great author in New York, and um, then got back and there were four messages, telephone messages from Bill Clark, who is the national security advisor. And Roger, I don't want you to get the wrong impression, but uh, Bill Clark was not used to calling me. 
once, <laughs> alone four times. Right, right. <laughs> but, uh, you know, in one morning. And so I... He called the president. That was probably the person he would normally call. Yes. Well, he was the national security right, officer, right. and he was in the president, with the president all day. And so he says, Ken, <clears throat> I want to talk to you about the arms control agency. To which I said, you know, during the transition... I was offered, you know, the, the deputy over there, and I'm just not interested in the deputy over there. I'm happy where I am, Bill. And he says, no, I'm, I'm not talking about the deputy. I'm talking about the main job. The main job, the director. And I said, well, well you have Gene Rostow there now. He says, I know, but uh, Gene Rostow is going to leave us. And I said, um, well, you know, we're comfortable in New York. And I started to do the whole routine there, and the girls are in school here. And I, love, <laughs> I love working with Gene. We had this... Uh, door between our offices and we were in and out all day in the in each other's office and he says ken stop he's a busy guy i i wasn't so busy to tell the truth <laughs> uh ken uh, stop he says the question is not whether you want to do this the question is will you do it the president wants you to do it and i said if that's the question the answer of course is yes he says great it's going to be announced at the noon briefing today at the white house press office well, you know, I had two women who were very mad at me. One with my wife and one was my boss. So the Honasky advisor, Judge Clark, poached you without coordinating with the his ambassador to the UN? Time. I would not have time to tell Gene. Gene was on the road somewhere and was very unhappy uh, when she heard that. And I think she heard it on the uh, press. Uh, oh, goodness. The radio thing. And um, she was mighty upset. And, you know, the wonderful thing, Roger, about Jean was when she was mighty upset, you know she was mighty upset. So so I've read. (laughs) So there was no ambiguity. There was no subtlety on her being mighty upset. So I I weathered through that. Uh, She had no choice. I had no choice. Uh, I weathered through. You know, my wife. How long, how long, right? And then you have your wife. How long did it take before uh, Ambassador Gene Kirkpatrick started talking to you again? <laughs> well, or at least speaking to you in terms that you well, could respond? I was very lucky. She was on the road uh, somewhere uh, for the next week or so. So she had time to cool off. Well, I don't know if she cooled off, but she had, I had time not to see her because every day we saw each other 14 times a day. So there, there was a blessed week <laughs> there where I didn't have to see Well, her. good on Judge Clark for uh, finding the right time to, to poach you without the ambassador around. I, it's amazing. That's a great story. But think about the, the names of the people that just came up. You know, you have Dick Allen, who's, of course, yeah. uh, the first national security advisor. And from what I can glean in my conversations, is, was, was really a seminal player in terms of getting President Reagan uh, organized and ready to become President of the United States and in the role of Commander-in-Chief. Yeah, you've, you've been reading a lot by Dick Allen. Uh, <laughs> uh, perhaps you have. Let me just tell you, Roger. All right, we're getting we're, we're getting to the uh, balancing of, of the history here. But he was he was somebody who was traveling him and organizing his stuff, and, and uh, that's really what I meant. Job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he's a wonderful guy. The fact is that Ronald Reagan was very interested in foreign affairs before he became president. Oh, absolutely right, and. Yeah, yeah. It is amazing looking at his thousand, roughly a thousand radio broadcasts from the time he left the governorship to the time late in the campaign in 1980. And out of those thousand, all right, and I, cal- cal- I calculated them at one point, um, out of the thousand, 
uh, over 60% have to do with the Soviet Union, with arms control, yep. with the arms race, Amazing. with the vulnerability. I mean, these are week after week after week. What didn't come up, Roger, was the hot button issues of that time, okay? And what were they? Summarized in God, guns, and um, God's guns, and gays. Yeah, right, okay? right, right. And abortion. All right, those four, God's guns, gays. Those did not come up in the thousand radio dresses? I'd say three or four. That's amazing. Time. So he didn't use any. He was he was looking. I mean, he ran for president in 76, obviously. He 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 started a run in 68. Issues that most politicians Mm -hmm. ride on. Great point. Uh, He was thinking about the he was thinking about the statesmanlike issues, the big the big issues. But my my, my point in raising uh gallon, of course, and and what you've just said, I mean the the Andersons, for example, were 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 key in, in Letting the whole world know and see Reagan his own hand and other things um, to do that, but but just the players you mentioned, Dick Allen, Judge Clark, and then of course Gene Kirkpatrick. Now here's a question I was curious about, and and we're getting in the weeds here on Reaganism, uh, so this is going to be one for all those Reagan enthusiasts who know who want to know the trivia and and understand and hear it from the players. None of this is trivia, Roger. All of it is very important. Well, right, but there is there is a side hustle here of of of, of knowing the Reagan. Uh, the facts and what happened. And the one I want to get after is President Reagan, or sorry, candidate Reagan reads Gene Kirkpatrick's article. And commentary. And commentary. Yep, he did. Um, who get, did, was, did he subscribe to commentary? Was that Dick Allen passing that, that along? Was Dick Allen passing along because Reagan wrote me a number of letters. I was then writing frequently on the Wall Street Journal. Okay. And so uh, Reagan wrote probably three letters to me out of the blue. He never heard of me before. And he liked this point about it. He liked that point about it. He liked the other point about it. So the letter to Gene was, uh, it was maybe more personal. I've never seen the letter or maybe more direct about it, but it's something that Reagan did. And he did it because of Dick Allen. Dick Allen would show him these, right. here's the wall street journal. They might be interested Mr. Uh, governor. Uh, you might want to look at this. And so so those letters, that was not unusual that he did that. It was unusual that maybe he was uh, far more impressed with it, as he should have been, with Gene's article and with any of my articles. <laughs> it was far more profound, but but that was a habit he was in. Of course, she's a neoconservative, but at the same time, you know, advancing human rights and freedom in the world, kind of core to her beliefs and outlook and 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 her view in terms of what America should be doing in the world. You shared uh, those perspectives, those views, um, and, and as did President Reagan. And one of the great abilities or things that President Reagan accomplished was kind of knitting together this coalition of all different sorts of conservatives. Um, I, I wonder just for a minute, it's, it's, it's fairly well known, but originally Gene Kirkpatrick wasn't quite impressed with President, with you know Ronald Reagan and uh, his entreaties and, and outreach uh, didn't really change uh, her view of him or necessarily her, her party affiliation or willingness to go over and, and, and support someone like Ronald Reagan. It was really more had to do with uh, the Carter administration's failures, as I understand it, that ultimately led her to uh, the Reagan camp. Um, do I have that right? And, and, and where did, you know, you, you served in the uh, Nixon and Ford administrations. So you were kind of more um kind of settled in, in the Republican camps. Uh, what about Gene Kirkpatrick? There was a whole group that's awfully interesting, Roger, 
of Democrats that were came around to Reagan. And this was the time when uh, Irving Kristol and Moynihan and um, there's a whole group that had been very liberal and then mugged by reality, as Irving Kristol said, and um, became more, you know, more conservative. Gene was the, the so-called neoconservatives, right? This is yep. And Jean was Jean was part of that, and um, so you know she was kind of unhappy with Carter. Uh, she was willing to you know tolerate Reagan, and when Reagan uh, involved her in the before the transition in the campaign, uh, the more she saw of Reagan, the, the more she liked, and that was true of Jean. It certainly was true of me. I wasn't a wild Reagan guy. And I was, yes, an advisory committee, but that meant absolutely nothing, to tell you the truth. And um, then, <clears throat> you know, uh, we met with Reagan a few times when he was the candidate. And uh, he said things that were perfectly fine. And, um, you know, then uh, when I joined the administration, I thought, yeah, he's going to be fine. I was a, uh, unlike Gene and unlike Rostow and unlike Paul Nitze and unlike Paul Wolfowitz, and unlike uh, Richard Pearl and a lot of these colleagues, uh, I was not a Democrat. I was a Republican from the Nixon-Ford uh, angle. I was always a Republican. I at Grinnell College in a very, very liberal uh, college in the middle of Iowa. That, that will do it to you, right? Was, that will make you a conservative, huh? <laughs> I was either the president of the Young Republicans or the only Young Republican. <laughs> <laughs> I think, I think They're a Young Republican of one. <laughs> of one. And that's right, it was singular, it's not. <laughs> and um, so, um, you know, I thought Reagan was going to be better than Carter, simple as that. But uh, as time went on and I saw more and more, I got more and more impressed. And Gene was the same way. And Gene had a little other spark. Reagan really loved women. Okay, and uh, he explain was, well, that could be interpreted lots of different ways. What, what do you what do you mean by that? I mean by that he with Maggie Thatcher he just enjoyed being with women. He enjoyed being with uh, Nancy Reynolds. He enjoyed being with Jean. Uh, there was something kind of the nineteen twenties Great Gatsby about him, with his hair parted the way it was. That it was kind of the gentlemen, and uh, here are the ladies. And uh, so the idea that there was a certain magnetism that he had with Gene, and certainly she had with him, that uh, superseded anything the rest of us. Interesting. Had. I want to get to, to your book, but this Gadsby kind of uh, analogy, you just introduced a conversation I've never heard before. Uh, <laughs> is that a new one or is that something you've explored previously? And it interests me not only because time ever uh, in this podcast, is, <laughs> in this podcast, but as other, I, I was going to fly, I, but have, have others, because one of the things about, uh, president Reagan biographers will say it and some struggled on it, you know, uh, significantly like Edmund Morris is that you it was so hard to penetrate the person. You know, which is almost a very Gatsby-esque quality. I don't know if you, if you were getting at that as well, or just kind of the the uh, well-dressed gentleman who kind of uh, perked up around, you know, 
My analysis was simpler, but if you want to pour more, all right. Meaning, well, we'll, Roger, well, if you want to pour more meaning in, you know, I, I know we have a professor of Shakespeare here, so I came in prepared, you know, wanted to make sure that I'm, I'm getting I'll the depth you, of your I'll insights. You, I'll try to be real quick on this. Uh, the first time I realized this was right after the inauguration. Okay, I was not in government. The day of his inauguration, I had uh, members of my family coming in. And we decided to do a black tie dinner at our very little house. Uh, and we had my sister and her husband, my brother and his wife, uh, Dick and Lynn Cheney, we had worked with at OEO. The Rumsfelds were there, uh, Don and Joyce, uh, the Carluccis were there, uh, Gene was there, George Will was there. And we had them jammed in our little, little house. Okay. Uh, and as we're setting the table uh, for everybody to have a black tie dinner uh, at our little, little house, uh, I get a call from Dick Allen that... Here he comes again. <laughs> that President Carter, ex-President Carter, as of three hours ago, would like to go over and, and greet the, the hostages in Wiesbaden. And Reagan... This, of course, is the Iran hostages that were released on Inauguration Day. That's right. And can he use the plane? And Reagan, of course, being Reagan, says, uh, yes, of course. Dick Allen, being Dick Allen, says we should have somebody on that plane. And uh, I was not going in government. And Paul Wolfowitz was. Rick Burt was. Others were. And so they thought the most dispensable person was me. Okay? <laughs> so... Uh, at four o'clock, they told me, you know, the car was going to come at uh, nine o'clock that night to pick me up. I said, uh, you know, we have a black tie dinner starting at 730 or something like that. Oh, man. One of the lessons I learned there, Roger, it is, was that it is very, very cool to walk out of your black tie dinner <laughs> that you're a host. <laughs> because you're going on Air Force One. So the point is. When we go to Wiesbaden, Carter meets with the hostages, and uh, Cyrus Vance was there, Brzezinski was there, all kinds of people. Uh, and I was the outsider, the administration. And um, a guy who was there uh, was um, in Wiesbaden, says, I'm the CIA doctor. Uh, we've been talking to these hostages ex-hostages now 12 hours. I hear you're from the Reagan administration. I said, no, 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 I'm not from the Reagan administration. And he said, well, that's what everybody said. I said, no, no, I'm, I'm here because, you know, uh, President Reagan asked me to do it, but, you know, I'm not joining the administration. He says, well, I want somebody that I can call and tell you how the hostages or ex-hostages are doing. And I says, I'm happy to take your call. Uh, it's going nowhere because I'm not part of the system. But, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I'd be happy to take your call. And he figured this is as good as he's going to get, I think. <laughs> and so he called me, you know, almost every night. And I'm talking about four days. All of a sudden, I got a call at home uh, as I'm vacuuming, as I remember. <laughs> and uh, what's my Social Security number? I told whoever was on the phone. And I said, what's it for? Oh, it's for the 11 o'clock meeting in the White House. <laughs> I said, what's the 11 o'clock meeting in the White House? She says, I don't know. I'm just getting social security numbers. The efficiency of government here, huh? God. 
and especially new new administration. So I had been working along with Paul Wolfowitz and Rick Burt with, uh, you know, then uh, Secretary of State, you know, designate Alexander Haig, uh, Haig. And so I called him. I said, yeah, I'm invited to this meeting. That must have been a mistake or something like that. And he said, no, no, no. Uh, you know, uh, you're supposed to come. And I says, okay, what's the meeting about? He says, I don't have time to talk to you now. Let's meet at, you know, 10 to 11, 11 o'clock meeting in the Roosevelt room across. I said, okay. So we go to the Roosevelt room across the way, and uh, I'm there at, you know, 20 to 11. I'm there at quarter to 11. I'm there at 10 to 11. And, you know, where the hell is the Secretary of State? And there's the vice president coming in, chairman of the Joint Chiefs, chairman of the CIA, chairman of Deaver, uh, you know, uh, Baker. And the, whole, the, whole, the whole senior crew. It's the full Monty. It's the full Monty of an NSC meeting. I think... May have been the first MC meeting. I don't know. Oh well. Anyway, I say to Hey, what 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 is all this about? And he says it's about the health and welfare of the ex hostages. I said, Oh, that's kind of interesting. Uh, who's doing the briefing? Oh, come so on. He says you are. And now it's three <laughs> minutes to eleven. Okay. I said I am. He says yes. Didn't anybody tell you that? I said no. They got my social security number. Oh, my goodness. I said, let's do this. Here are three points to make. I just gave him some points. And then I can fill in. Okay? And you're Secretary of State. I'm not even in the administration. So, anyway, we go there. I'm sitting there. We're right across the president. And you knew Haig, obviously, from previous administrations. Not for previous administration. We had dealt with him on the backup for the hostage uh, negotiations in Algiers at that time. Anyway, we're there. And, um, you know, uh, Reagan's right across, and Haig does a wonderful job of taking these three points and making it seem like he had studied this for the last year. <laughs> and, you know, Critical skill as Secretary of State. Yes, yeah. Presentation. And then we, Reagan, who's right across the table from me and from Haig, uh, goes like this, you know, to kind of talk. And then Deaver asks a question, and, you know, pretty simple. Uh, I could answer it pretty easily. And then, you know, somebody else asked a question. Finally, I'm kind of embarrassed. And uh, I don't want to say I called on the president, but, you know, everybody's kind of interrupting him. And he's so nice. He leans forward and then he leans back. And I said, Mr. President, did you want to say something? And he says to me, well, Ken, I really don't know how to phrase this. Okay. And I, my life, Roger, passed my eyes okay and i thought to myself oh man i can fool all these other people <laughs> the United States, and he's asking me a question okay and i really don't know that much about what i'm talking about i had yeah, four, four, four calls with the cia doc right okay hey doctor I okay i don't know this subject at all and <laughs> these people think i do i don't it's all a fraud <laughs> And so I just am nervous as can be. Uh, Reagan says, well, I don't know how to say this, Ken. I'm, well, I'll just kind of blurt it out. I thought, oh, Christ, this is, this is terrible. You're toast. I'm toast. <laughs> and he leans forward and says, Ken, how about the ladies? Were the ladies, uh, I don't want to, yeah. And I said, uh-huh. Mr. President, I met with all four. There were four out of the uh, hostages. And uh, none of them were sexually abused. I used the phrase. Right. It was shocking. 
And um, he, and then I said, you know, I think the two of them are doing real well. The other two are coming along nicely, blah, 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 blah. You know, and I told whatever it was, but none of them were sexually abused or, you know, abused in any serious way. That's what he wanted to know. He leaned back, big smile. He said, okay, so the ladies were all right. And I said, they were all right, Mr. President. And so I got the idea of, you know, ah, there was somebody from another era. Got it. And not even honor it. was designed to right? say he couldn't right. use the word sexually abused or sexually anything. He couldn't even use the word the women. Okay. It was the ladies, mm -hmm. the ladies. Fast. So something in my mind registered. And when, you know, I saw the relationship with, with the others and, and Maggie Thatcher, Maggie Thatcher and, you know, amazing sparks there. I'm going to jump ahead uh, with our remaining time because Jump ahead. We're not even at the beginning. Of well, this. that's what I'm saying. We, 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 we started it was three days. Yeah, I know, but, but, uh, and you made such an impact already. Um, despite your best, despite your best efforts to stay out, you ultimately came in. Um, but really where I think you made your mark and, 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 and the story that you're most famous for telling is years later, 1986 during uh, the Reykjavik summit. And that's, of course, the book that you wrote, um, kind of want to approach this in two ways. One, something you've written about a lot, spoken about a lot, but want to get to here, your contention that in those 48 hours, right, President Reagan was able to bring the Cold War to an end. Now, you know, scholars who will say, well, this is not no person has done this, or it wasn't a function of arms control negotiations. It was, you know, the Soviet Union was collapsing under its own weight anyway. I mean, there's a variety of, of ways of, you know, approaches people take. Certainly here in the halls of the Reagan Institute, we're quite comfortable with your formulation and the title of your books. I don't mean to suggest otherwise, but I'd love for you just to, in, in unfair podcast fashion, right? Like in 180 seconds or less, the best argument why this summit, that moment in time, or those 40 hours brought the Cold War to an end? It was because we, Ronald Reagan was willing to sit down with the Soviets, but also willing to stand up to the Soviets. And it was willing that he was not going to give up the one thing that they feared the most, which was SDI. And I am not claiming that the SDI program or Reagan's walking out of Reykjavik ended the Cold War. I'm saying it was a stress accelerator. The system was under stress, but Reagan <clears throat> faced a situation that Gorbachev thought, I'm going to make him an offer he cannot refuse. Which was, let's give up we nuclear weapons. Reduce nuclear weapons that exist today, and you give up a research program on SDI that does not exist today, that is airy-fairy, that is out there somewhere, uh, but scares the daylights out of us, okay? That was a deal that Ronald Reagan could not refuse, according to Mikhail Gorbachev. When Reagan did refuse it, Gorbachev figured, oh, my God, okay? This is the approach I had was not going to work. The only approach I am left with is to take the reforms I had started before Reykjavik, Perestroika and Glasnost, and accelerate them and to really jam them 
fast because that's the only way we can keep up with these guys. All right. And so I think the accelerated reforms really brought the house down. So, so that's how it kind of one event kind of impacted this decisions of Mikhail Gorbachev. They had been spending so much money on their defense program to keep up. They thought maybe they could alleviate the burden by reducing arms control, President Reagan saying nuclear arms. arms, excuse me, and then and, and scuttling SDI. Right. When President, why? And a lot of scholars have written about this. Why was SDI a non-starter for President Reagan? Was it truly what he says, which was that was the key to ridding the world of nuclear weapons? It was. It's a very good question. I wrote in uh, the Heritage Foundation that has really deteriorated over the years. But anyway, the Heritage Foundation, uh, I wrote a article in 1979 or 1980 that defense, strategic defense, uh, missile defense should be looked at once again, as it had been in the early 70s. And uh, so I supported SDI. I thought it was a good idea. Reagan thought it was a sensational idea, okay? The main idea that he had. And why, why did he love it so much? Number one, we didn't know. I didn't know. Maybe I'm dense, but I didn't know. Reagan was so anti-nuclear yeah. as it turned out he was. He really when, you, when you say you didn't know, do you, do you mean that you did not know Reagan if, was somebody who was a nuclear abolitionist in terms of his aspiration going into a Reykjavik-like summit? That's correct. I did not know it. We had done the Minuteman buildup. Yeah. We had done the Midget Man. We had done the Euro, Euro missiles. I mean, we had done uh, the uh, accelerated Reagan military buildup. Right. Uh, I had no idea he was anti nuclear. I really didn't. Okay. And so he saw this as a way to get rid of nuclear weapons. He thought of a way to protect America rather than mutually assured destruction which meant to Ronald Reagan, and he kept saying it to us over and over again, that uh, like two cowboys with guns at each other. Yeah, he thought that it was immoral. I mean, this is a horrible way. And uh, there was no way that uh, we should keep that situation. So he, he had an idea of SDI that was far beyond anybody else's idea, but it was an idea that, um, you know, uh, he thought about it and he, he planned out and it didn't come to him suddenly and it didn't, it wasn't an impulse at all. And he was not about to give it up. One of the interesting things about this, Roger, is that in my book, Reagan and Reykjavik, that uh, we were with him all day, all weekend long. He met with Gorbachev 10 and a half hours. Yeah. I don't know about you, but I've never met with my wife 10 and a half hours over the weekend. <laughs> and if I had, it wouldn't have been 51 years of marriage. Uh, you know, that's a long time yeah. to spend with somebody. Yeah. 50, uh, 10 and a half hours. And uh, with no social events. Geneva the year before was all social events. Right. Reykjavik was about getting ready for the big dance in Washington. That's right. But it was not, I mean, it's kind of amazing thinking back at it. At no point did Reagan or Gorbachev think about inviting the over the other one over for a meal or for a cup of coffee or for breakfast. All business, anything. all business. And they weren't doing anything else. You know, they were. What, one more question on this SDI piece. I mean, you didn't quite share just now. Uh, know that Reagan was a nuclear abolitionist. 
I don't think people knew that Gorbachev, it wasn't like the CIA had given you intel that Gorbachev was going to put nuclear weapons on the table. So kind of this meeting obviously took off in a fashion that no one really anticipated. But did you go into the meeting knowing that in the world of arms control negotiations and, 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 and treaties, that SDI had to be outside of that negotiating space, that you knew that Reagan was so committed to it that whatever you were going to get to, you kind of all knew that SDI, you know, was off limits. I suspected that. Maybe other members of the delegation suspected that, um, but it didn't matter. It really hmm. didn't matter. I'll tell you why it didn't matter, Roger. Over the two days he met with us, President Reagan never asked us whether we should give up SDI. Hmm. He never asked us whether we should trim SDI. He never asked us uh, whether we could do this, that, or the other with SDI. And why didn't he ask us? Because he frankly didn't care what our view. He had his view. He knew his he approach. His view. Yeah. And that was the only view he really. That wanted. really mattered, huh? He would ask us and defer to us on the nuclear reductions because he didn't know how to do that. He knew he wanted to cut them by fifty percent. Uh, for the first time ever, Gorbachev was willing to cut nuclear weapons. Every Soviet leader before that time had been willing to s slow down the advance of nuclear weapons. In other words, if I have 1,000 now and I'm planning on 1,500, right. and then uh, we agreed to 1,300, I say, okay, I'm that's less than what I had planned, but it's still more than we had. Reagan wanted to really- Actual reductions. And that's why we changed the name of the talks from SALT, Strategic Arms Limit. Limitation Talks, to start reduction. Strategic Arms Reduction Talks. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so uh, Reagan wanted real reductions on nuclear weapons, but we had no idea that Gorbachev would tie that to killing SDI. And we didn't know that till Sunday morning. Fascinating. Um, one more episode, and then I want to go to the book and the coming movie about Reykjavik. So, of course, Reagan holds true to his principles, particularly, and you know, no uh, negotiation on SDI, and it's immediately uh, viewed as a failure. Their first treatment of it is, "Hey, this is a, a political failure. Um, everybody's upset and frustrated. You know, Ten and a half hours in the room and nothing to show for it." And, you know, he had all this momentum going in and President Reagan responds to all this negative energy by saying, we're going to take it to the people. I'm going to take it to the American people and gives a speech explaining to the American people why he did what he did at Reykjavik. And one of my favorite lines is I love to kind of get some inside baseball, what the discussion was, or maybe it was all within between the years of President Reagan is that he ultimately explains to American people by saying, I will never negotiate our away our freedom or our future. Mm -hmm. Right. Tell, just g give your reflection, kind of being around all that, and, and how effective it was for Reagan essentially arresting this kind of political uh, fallout by going straight to the American people. Uh, I have to be honest with you, uh, Roger. His speech was wonderful that Monday night, which is the 13th of October. Uh, actually, Columbus Day at that time in 1986. The uh, the actual summit was the 11th and 12th. Reagan went live from the White House on the 13th. Uh, but 
Mikhail Gorbachev went live from the Kremlin on the 14th, okay? So he did his, uh, Reagan gave a crisp, wonderful 20-minute speech. Uh, Gorbachev, which, which was his inclination, went on and on and on <laughs> and uh, couldn't, couldn't stop talking. Uh, Reagan did appeal to the American people, and he laid it out in a way that was very understandable and very um, sympathetic. And the fact is that Reagan said <clears throat> he thought this was going to be popular. And by Wednesday, he was writing into his diary that, uh, you know, the numbers really went up for support for SDI. And he was very happy about that. So it was a brilliant thing to do. I wouldn't say it was an exceptional thing to do, Roger, because um, Reagan went to speeches often. When, when there was a serious and, and issue. I was just talking to uh, our, our director of scholarly initiatives here at the Reagan Institute, Anthony Eames, um, and he was making a point, which I think captures this piece of the conversation, that you know, Reagan was intellectually curious. He was a person of ideas, but it wasn't necessarily captured in, in those NSC meetings, like the story you told earlier. And he's let it, letting his advisor speak. He asked his one question, but it very much came out in the editing process and the development of speeches and what he chose to communicate. And I'll tell you the point here, Roger, if I may say. Ronald Reagan, unlike most people, I would say unlike most of us, <laughs> stood out. He stood out in many ways. But one of the things was he really had no desire to show you how incredibly intelligent he was. Mm -hmm. He really didn't. And he didn't care that much about it. And it was such a contrast to... Bill Clinton or Donald Trump. Or the, or the who, typical who, Washington who, figure, smartest person in the room. The smartest person in the room. He didn't care much about yeah. showing. In fact, it, some people have said that that was his uh, almost strategic in fashion, right? He wanted people to underestimate him. It was his modesty. He was very modest. He didn't like to talk about himself. Uh, he was very, he was very unreflective. Uh, he said, you know, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. Reagan led a life well worth living, as we know, but it was largely unexamined by him. It was lucky for us because we could do it for him. But uh, he was he was not interested in showing how smart he was. So, uh, Ken, you have Reagan at Reykjavik. It's a very successful book. But for those people who don't want to read Cold War books, they're going to have an opportunity to see a piece of Cold War history on the big screen. Tell us what we can expect. First of all, let me interrupt you, Roger. Those who don't want to read a Cold War book, it uh, doesn't mean they, they don't want to buy a Cold War book. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, you can buy Reagan at Reykjavik, anywhere you buy books on Amazon. There you go. Okay. It looks great on the bookshelf. And buy lots of Buy lots, yes. Okay. For, for gifts. It makes wonderful. I mean, we have uh, Halloween coming up. <laughs> okay. Halloween gifts. Absolutely. Get your uh, Reagan at Reykjavik Halloween gift uh, on Amazon. And then at some point when you'll tell us, you can also take your family to watch Reagan at Reykjavik on the big screen. What what, what can we expect? What you, we can expect is right now, uh, this is bubbling up for some time. It is a limited series of three or four segments. Uh, Paramount is involved. Sky uh, TV in Britain may be involved. It's still uh, outstanding. Uh, but Paramount is involved. 
Michael Douglas has signed on to, to play Reagan. Uh, Christoph Waltz is eager to play Gorbachev. The girl with the uh, dragon tattoo, Rapace, <laughs> is uh, playing uh, Raisa Gorbachev. And others, uh, the script is wonderful. Like I say, it'll either be three-part limited series or four-part limited series. That's exciting. And uh, Timeline? Would we have any idea? A couple years out? They want to start filming early in 23, and they want to release it by Christmas of 23. Oh, wow. So the quick turn. That, yeah. Having said that, uh, you know, this has been put off because of COVID and lots yeah, of sure. For uh, time, so so this is not the tightest organization. Now I, su oh, I assume you're going to go ahead and play Ken Edelman, correct? <laughs> no, no, not okay. one, one of the things that I've learned in this is that it is uh, aggravating. I'll tell you that firsthand. How long movies take to mm, develop, mm. but it is shocking that any move movies are developed. Oh. <laughs> that's, <what you're> <laughs> that's that's the real story. Well, we will wait here patiently uh, for the three or four port series. Yeah. And, it, it, and it gives you good insight into the Reykjavik Summit. It gives you good insight into what I think is was Ron Reagan's finest moment. Simple as that. As evidenced by the uh, the title of, of, of the book. Ken, we're going to have to wrap up this discussion. I have to have you back another time to talk about Russia and Ukraine and uh, the INF Treaty that, of course, uh, came after Reykjavik. Uh, and now uh, the U.S. is no longer part of But all of that for later. Uh, here's where we're going to go to our lightning round where we ask you three questions. One, you questions you're eminently qualified to answer. Share with us your favorite book on Reagan. It can't be your own. Favorite Reagan speech and favorite Reagan quote. Give me one, two, or all three. Book, speech, quote. What do you got? Uh, I don't know why uh, mine is is excluded. But um, I guess that what I, I do love Lou Cannon's book, but he's written five of them on Reagan. But, uh, you know, The Role of a Lifetime is a uh, very wonderful book. So I think... Um, I think I, I would have that. The uh, favorite quote is one we have on our kitchen table. Uh, you can, <laughs> how does it go? You, there's no end to what you can accomplish if you're not willing to, uh, if you're willing to give up the credit or right. you know, not care about who gets the credit. And um, what was your third? I think I get your, your favorite speech. Oh, the favorite speech, I think. You know, as great as the tear down the wall speech was, the greatest speech was the D-Day plus 40 speech. Point to Hawk. And yeah, Point to Hawk. That was the greatest. Right runner up there was the Challenger speech. That was the day that the uh, State of the Union was supposed to take uh, place. And, so great speech and, by President Reagan with the support of, of Peggy Noonan, both of those. So Wonderful. They were both wonderful speeches. Ken Edelman, thank you so much for being on the show. We'll have to have you back. Fantastic discussion and best of luck on Reagan at Reykjavik out of Hollywood. Okay, very good. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.